You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ransomware is still with us. A new study of the state of online fraud is out. And one lesson is it's better to take some, any precaution than to whistle and hope for the best. Windows seems to suffer from an exploitable vulnerability. How serious it may prove remains to be seen. Mirai botnets continue to sputter across the IoT. Signs point to a public health approach to mitigating DDoS. And those doxed Kremlin emails? Apparently, the real deal. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary and Week in Review for Friday, October 28, 2016. With all the recent concern over distributed denial-of-service attacks, it's worth recalling that the ransomware threat hasn't gone away. It's just been eclipsed a bit in the news cycle. Netitude Labs, which is keeping an eye on the RIG exploit kit, reports an increase in RIG alarms. The kit is delivering CryptMic ransomware, taking over distribution after Cisco's Talos unit shut down the earlier vector, malvertising using the Neutrino exploit kit. RIG is also being used, Netitude says, in pseudo-darkleach and EI-test malvertising campaigns. And the Sands Institute shares work by itself bleeping computer and malware bytes into the continuing distribution Cerber, so the ransomware threat is still out there and still active. The fraud protection shop Easy Solutions this morning released FraudBeat 2016, its annual study of trends in online fraud. Mobile applications and social media, of course, figure prominently in the current attack landscape. One of the findings suggests that taking some, any, protective measures on mobile systems is better than doing nothing and hoping for the best. The study found that organizations that installed no protective measures were between four and nine times likelier to be attacked than those who had some precautions in place. Multi-factor authentication reduces the incident of phishing attacks by a factor of three. Social media, of course, are rife with bogus profiles. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram between them are infested with more than 80 million fake profiles, and these, of course, figure in many attacks. One mildly surprising finding in Easy Solutions study is that four out of five Google searchers click sponsored AdWords links as opposed to organic search results, and more than a third of those clickers don't even realize that there's a distinction here. It has driven a rise in search engine ad poisoning activity. Finally, of course, personal identifiable information, PII, continues to have value in the criminal markets, especially when it can be monetized through creation of false identities. Personally identifiable information can be stolen from many sources. 
This week, a big compromise has come to light in Australia. The Australian Red Cross has suffered a data breach, possibly through inadvertent leakage as opposed to hacking, although that's unclear at this time. A file containing blood donor records going back to 2010 and including more than a million donor records was found exposed on a public-facing website. This is believed to represent the largest single breach in Australian history. The CyberWire heard from Ilya Koloshenko, CEO of web security company Hitech Bridge. Commenting on the Australian Red Cross breach, he said, quote, It's difficult to determine the exact cause of data leakage in this particular case, but frequently human negligence is the main reason. End quote. He sees skid hackers as a kind of second-order source of carelessness. Quote, it can also be a consequence of a previous breach. Sometimes inexperienced hackers put data archives on the website to download or share with others and forget or just don't bother to delete it afterwards. End quote. Security company NSILO has reported finding a code injection vulnerability affecting all Windows versions, including Windows 10. They're calling it atom bombing. According to Ensilo, the flaw could enable an attacker to bypass security products, access encrypted passwords, steal desktop screenshots, and exploit browser sessions with man-in-the-middle attacks. Since Atom Bombing exploits Windows Atom tables provided by the operating system to enable applications to store, share, and access data, Ensilo believes the issue arises from the design of the Windows OS and isn't susceptible to patching. The direct mitigation answer, Ensilo says, would be to tech-dive into the API calls and monitor those for malicious activity. To return to the aforementioned DDoS threat, no, we haven't forgotten it, Mirai botnets are continuing spurts of activity against targets that strike observers as selected more or less randomly. Since Mirai's source code was released, Arbor Networks has been tracking its mutations. Hackers, dismissed by Motherboard as wannabes, have been adding buggy features to that code. The DDoS attacks against Dyne a week ago were very large, perhaps exceeding a terabyte per second. Various proposals for dealing with botnet-driven distributed denial-of-service attacks by ISPs include increased filtering and blocking, controversial because of the potential for censorship or other misuse, and notification to customers of device compromise. ISPs have tended to hesitate to notify customers of botnet activity unless it affected their own network performance, but there's growing acceptance of a public health model that would encourage them to warn users of infected devices in the hopes of containing botnet formation. You remember Vladislav Surkov, the Putin advisor who doesn't use email? He uses email after all, or so it seems. Several of the very large number of documents hacked and released by the Ukrainian hacktivists of Cyber Hunta have been confirmed by third parties as genuine. Some of the emails indicate Russian government contingency plans to force a shutdown over Ukraine's Donbass region as early as next month. Meanwhile, Mr. Putin dismisses claims that Russia is meddling in U.S. elections, despite those claims being widely believed and strongly supported. He accuses American officials of acting like a bunch from a banana republic and that they're trying to whip up hysteria. On that whole banana republic thing, we think President Putin has the dismissive stereotype of a small Central American government in mind and isn't referring to the clothing retailer. But who knows? If a lot of orders for cargo shorts go out from the Kremlin on Black Friday, we'll be the first to acknowledge we've misunderstand you, Vladimir Vladimirich. And finally, okay, we know you're tired of hearing this, but National Cybersecurity Awareness Month is now in its final full week. The theme is Our Continuously Connected Lives. What's your aptitude? 
It's aptitude as in app. Get it? So seriously, spare a moment to think about how you're choosing, downloading, and using apps. The digital exhaust you save could be your own. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, Ben, uh, earlier this week, there was uh, a session where Maryland lawmakers heard arguments over police surveillance technologies. The hearing took place in Annapolis, the state capital. But uh, uh, my my understanding is that uh, you were actually on the scene. Yes, I was a uh, more of a part player in this whole performance, but I was there. Uh, So this was a hearing convened by the House Judiciary Committee. Normally, they're not in session this time of year, but I think this was a topic of sufficient importance that they decided to hold an out-of-session hearing. And they reviewed three uh, surveillance programs and looked at both the law and policy issues of all of them. The first is the aerial surveillance that was discovered a couple months ago, which consists of the Cessna uh, flyovers started by a private organization in Dayton uh, that was just uncovered in the news a couple of months ago. They also uh, discussed Stingray devices, which I know you and I have talked about a good deal on this podcast and mm-hmm. uh, your listeners are very familiar with. And also they looked at facial recognition technology. Uh, there was a realization recently that Maryland State Police use uh, facial recognition technology, and they don't just get the images from criminal arrests or, or criminal records. They're actually also matching images to MVA records, which I think rubbed a lot of civil liberties advocates uh, the wrong way. There was representatives of both sides of the issues. The ACLU and the Office of the Public Defender talked about what they thought was necessary 
legislation needed to, to protect against overreach by law enforcement. And they thought there had to be specific legislation to curb the abuses of each of these technologies, but broader legislation to make sure that there are public hearings and public notices to make sure the public is sufficiently aware of the programs and has an opportunity to, to comment on it. And that's actually important from a legal perspective. Uh, we know based on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that a person, there's not a search for Fourth Amendment purposes unless a person's reasonable expectation of privacy is violated. And it's hard to know whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy if you're never given a chance to be aware of some of these programs. Certainly, if we walk out on the street and see one of those blue light cameras, we're aware that they're uh, doing video surveillance in our neighborhood. But for something like overhead surveillance, where a Cessna plane is flying up to 25,000 feet uh, above the city of Baltimore, it would be hard for a person to even contemplate a scenario uh, of them or their vehicles being surveilled by, by overhead devices. And as a result, that would be a violation of one's reasonable expectation of privacy. And that would mean that to do that, the government would have to have a warrant or, or an equivalent of a warrant. Uh, I thought that the discussion on the Stingray device was particularly interesting. We had a case here in Maryland uh, at the Court of Special Appeals a few months ago, the Andrews case, that held that a warrant is required before the government uh, uses Stingray devices to get location identifying information from individuals. So the legislature was sort of grappling with that uh, new standard. And I think the representatives from law enforcement and their representatives from both Baltimore County and Baltimore City were trying to show the process that they go through and uh, tried to argue that they actually each search not only complies with the law as articulated by the Court of Special Appeals, but actually goes through a, a series of four separate judicial proceedings before a person's location identifying information is retained. Uh, so it was a, a particularly interesting hearing. I think we'll definitely need to uh, pay close attention when the state legislature comes back in, in January to see if they attack some of these problems head on and what kind of legislation they, they look to adopt. All right. Well, stay tuned and uh, we'll check in as the story develops. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Doug Song. He's the CEO of Duo Security, where he's a strong advocate for a back-to-basics approach to cybersecurity. He also rejects what he describes as a learned helplessness reaction to cyber threats and thinks users can be empowered by better systems with better design. I'm a 20-year veteran of network security. Mostly, uh, most of my career, what people know me mostly for is some of the open-source software that I used to write. So back before I did any companies, I was something of a software communist. If you look at uh, like your SSH man page, um, I was one of the authors of SSH, um, but also a bunch of exploits like DSNF to go capture people's credentials, passwords. Well, actually, I tried to get out of security for a while. 
I felt like security was something of a lemon market where, you know, vendors would sell you a box, the box would sit in your network, and it wouldn't really do anything. And, uh, you know, the customer would say, well, geez, am I any more secure? The vendor said, of course you are. See, nothing's happened. And the customer would say, well, nothing happened before. But that was sort of the quality, I think, of a lot of, uh, unfortunately, sort of security products back in that day and age. Or again, like the best thing that ever happened on someone's watch, like a CISO's, um, in a CISO's career, is that nothing happened. And I think, you know, today it's sort of changed a little bit, where security now has to enable a lot of the things that people want to do, whether it's cloud or mobile or have you. And, um, and I think a lot of the ways in which, again, security has been constructed for networks, for systems, and for applications has not scaled to the way that uh, an organization actually needed to, where today, again, I think the biggest security exposure we all have is people. Right? Attackers don't go after systems so much as users. And um, in an age of hyper-connectedness, there's been so much discussion about how prevention has failed and uh, almost this sort of learned helplessness, right? That actually, oh, there's nothing I can do to stop the attacks. It's not a matter of if, but when. And in fact, uh, our money is better spent, or your money is better spent, as is usually told, a story told by vendors, on things like, you know, threat intelligence and other kinds of um, you know, fairly esoteric kind of security functions that most organizations will never be able to operationalize. And, and so what kind of solutions are you advocating? You know, we believe that we have to democratize security. And by that, we mean that we have to make security something that is inclusive of everybody. That when your users, your end users, uh, are the ones who are actually much more responsible for your security than maybe your, your average security professional. And by that, I mean that, you know, if your users don't want to jump through your corporate VPN, right, to use your corporate file server to share a file with a colleague, they will upload it to Dropbox right, and do this instead. Right. And, and no amount of policy necessarily will, will really solve these kinds of issues for, for a lot of organizations. A different approach is required. And so, you know, in democratizing security, our, our perspective has been that we, we have to make security easy in order for it to be effective. That if, in fact, security is not designed for people, instead of being designed for networks, designed for systems, designed for applications, it won't be adopted by end users. And so we have to actually make security something that is a design-led operation where, you know, today's security professionals have to be almost more like public health professionals, right? We're thinking very carefully about how they align user incentives toward the organizational outcomes that they're seeking to achieve. Because you can tell people to stop smoking, but sometimes you have to find other ways to lead them there. And so the kind of solutions that Do is focused on, and I think increasingly more and more the security industry sort of has to come to, are ones that actually respect the end user, you know, systems that actually are thoughtful about how they automate a lot of what the organizational workflow is for companies that have better things to do, right, than, than deal with putting out security fires. And so between those two things, between, you know, a, a strong focus on user, user experience and design, as well as on automation to make the administrative side of security really, really simple, I think these are the core things that almost any new security technology has to be thoughtful about. Because, again, if users don't like it, they will simply reject it. And there's so many new ways around you know, these organizational boundaries of IT today that, again, you know, most CISOs, they'll never have a fighting chance unless they, they, they build the kind of security that people want. How would this work with something, for example, like a password? How is a, how is a design approach going mm-hmm. to increase our, our credentialing? Yeah, so I think some things that you see is uh, to afford convenience to users with the trade-off in, in, you know, in being able to provide more security. And so, for instance, things like single sign-on, 
you know, the ability to use one single password and have that login carry across automatically all the applications that you might need to access, that's a strong degree of user convenience that, you know, actually end users want, but actually benefits security, right? Because you have less passwords to govern. You have um, more ability to audit in a centralized way the accesses that happen between applications, but you also have then the vantage point to provide other kind of inspection and control. And that affordance of security by delivering convenience, I think is one of the core principles that more and more you know, security operators are, are, are going to have to think about. That's Doug Song from Duo Security. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.